welcome to a very special episode and series of Man Enough called No More Silence. We're doing a special four-part series with our partners Healthline, where we're breaking the silence about why men are less likely to talk about and seek care for mental and physical health issues and what we, the collective we, mm -hmm. can do about it. And we have a very special guest with us for all four of these episodes. YOLO! <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited uh, to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, so my name is Yolo Akili Robinson. I'm the executive director and founder of BEAM, the Black Emotional and Mental Health Collective. BEAM is a national training, movement building, and grant making institution dedicated to the healing, wellness, and liberation of Black and marginalized communities. Mm. And I'm a longtime healing justice and wellness worker in community health for about 16 years now. And I'm excited to be here. Mm. So excited to have you. <laughs> Me too. YOLO, I, and I want fact checkers on this, is, said he was turning 40. And <laughs> I no, barely, no, 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 no. I, I know. Are you serious? It's, I will be 40 next week. <laughs> oh, man. We're getting that fact check. I'm gone. We're getting that fact check. I'm going to see you guys later. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Just immaculate. I'm, I'm keeping all of my 40 years. I'm grateful for every year. <laughs> what, are we, what are we doing today? Yeah. Why are we here for this special series? I think that we got to address the elephant in the room. Which is? Which is why the hell we men don't take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go to doctors? Why are we ashamed or embarrassed when something is wrong with us? Why do we lie to doctors? There's a whole lot of stuff around this, and mm -hmm. it's, a lot to, it's a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Liz? I have so many thoughts, uh, and we have an incredible expert uh, at, our, at our table. So I'd love to start with, you know, even just this idea in general in our society and, and women definitely do it too but i think th if we see it through the prism of masculinity we really separate physical and mental health like we see them as completely different mm -hmm. things why do you think that we do that and why is it so important that we maybe do that a little less well first i think there's a there's a history of how we got to this point of seeing the physical body uh the spirit from the spiritual or the emotional or the mental right i mean this is the whole history of western psychology and mental health mm -hmm. we have to look to um there's a reason why we currently have so many neurobiologists and so many scientists who are telling us that actually your brain is not just here your brain is all throughout your body mm -hmm. uh, who are telling us that so many depressive symptoms can be mimicked when a, somebody has not eaten over a course of a couple of days a lot of, particularly with children right a lot of children yeah. being diagnosed with a variety of different conditions that are actually emblematic of other things, so some of them being physical nourishment, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of these things that we're kind of um, coming into awareness right now are showing us that things are not separate the way we would like them to be. Mm -hmm. There is the, the physical and emotional not separate. Um, one thing I talk about, um, I have a background as a yoga teacher, and I really mm -hmm. feel like it's important to talk about um, somatic, somatization, mm -hmm. right? So somaticization, for people who are not aware, is the ways in which our body kind of, we store emotions and feelings in our yes. body, right? And so you think about all these instances where we have, particularly in my family and in black communities and all communities, you have a relative or someone or even yourself, you have this pain in your shoulder and you go to your doctor and the doctor's like, there's nothing wrong with your shoulder, mm -hmm. right? But then digging deeper under it emotionally, you find that this is connected to an emotional experience I had with a sibling or, or, maybe, or maybe I lost a loved one and somehow that was connected to my shoulder. Mm -hmm. So now I'm mm -hmm. storing that emotional memory in my mm -hmm. shoulder. There's a really great book called The Body Keeps, Keeps the Score, the score. Mm -hmm. yes. which really talks about this. And so we have to really start thinking thinking, how are they connected? What are the role they are mm. playing with each other? What is the role that masculinity as, as a concept, as yeah. ideas, play on how I show up in my body or mm -hmm. I don't show up in mm -hmm. my body or how I don't show up for my body? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so many dimensions, but I think the important piece to kind of answer your question briefly is that 
we have been taught through um, the early kind of history of Western psychology and, 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 and wellness that that is that everything is separate. And mm-hmm. now we're coming back to a point of realizing everything's interconnected, wow. which many indigenous and folks have been telling us quite since forever. Yes. Right. Yeah. Wow. And so much of masculinity even can be a health risk, right? Yeah. Having a higher score on this more traditional version of masculinity can lead to more risky behaviors, uh, going to the doctor less, wearing less sunscreen, yes. all the things we kind of know. But the, some of the most interesting data to me in this area is showing that men who make less than their female partners, so we're talking about obviously mm. heterosexual men um, who are in partnerships with women, those women, if they make more than them, men who are in those partnerships have higher levels of hypertension, mm. uh, higher diabetes, higher risk of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And it's separate from, you know, again, I'm not a scientist, but the people who've done this research have separated from all the other behaviors that might be influencing that, that it really is just because of the stress mm. of not meeting that that ideal of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you find that uh, in your work with, with young men? Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, I often credit um, my real education around men and masculinity came at an organization I worked at called Men Stopping Violence. And for folks who are not familiar, Men Stopping Violence, um, based in Atlanta, Georgia, is an organization that's dedicated to ending male violence against women by organizing and working with men. Mm-hmm. But it was six months of men coming through this process of beginning to really examine how they had internalized ideas about masculinity and how those ideas have shown up in their behavior and in their choices, mm-hmm. impacting not only themselves and their physical selves, but like also their families and their communities, often and with detrimental mm-hmm. and harmful impact, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can see a direct correlation. If I am taught my whole life from birth as many men, and not just men, I want to be clear, like as a non-binary mm-hmm. person, I've lived in this body all my life. I'm read and receive male privilege every single moment of every day. So these things are still very deeply embedded in what I have to learn as well, mm-hmm. you know, and that's different for different non-binary people who may present differently or be read differently, right? Mm-hmm. But when you receive the messaging from very early on to emotionally disconnect, to emotionally suppress, and you receive that message early, like I talk about my godson Dante, um, about how he was learning how to walk, and I remember being at his barbecue, and he fell, like, you know, he was trying, like, you know, he's doing that little thing little kids do, you know, like the legs, right leg before the front leg, just trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. and I'm like a good distance away from him, I'm trying to egg him on, and then he falls down, like, and it's kind of hard before I can get to him. And so I pick him up, he's crying, snot nose, crying, not hurt, but crying, and I'm just comforting him. And in that moment, his father comes out and says, put him down, he needs to learn how to be a man. He's gonna be a punk if you keep doing that to him. Oh, mm-hmm. And I think I use that as an example to talk about like how it starts so early. Yeah. I'm like, Dante, he can't even pee in the toilet yet. He ain't like, like, you know what I mean? like he can't. But you want him to figure somehow figure out how to be a man. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you're, you're in that indoctrination of shut down your emotions, shut down that part of yourself starts so early and continues throughout the course of our lives. So, of course, when we're 40 or mm-hmm. 50, what? Do you want me to talk about my feelings? Mm-hmm. You want me to go mm-hmm. to a doctor and experience something vulnerable? If I haven't received a message that has taught me to not to do something counter to that, I'm going to internalize that and keep that going. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to look at like how early it starts, how the schools, how the education system, the media all reinforces this as natural and the way things are, as opposed to choices that we all make every day as a part of a system to reinforce this in men and, and masculine yes. folks. Mm. And that we can also make different choices about how we engage that. You know, there's wow. all those dimensions. So you know, beautifully said. As you as you were talking and you were describing your godson, mm-hmm. um, it reminds me of uh, the Bell Hooks quote where she talks about the first act of violence that men are 
tasked to commit in the patriarchy isn't violence against women, it's violence against themselves. Absolutely. And that act of soul murder where we sever ourselves from our hearts. And um, in some of my work, what I'm finding um, kind of goes back to this work that was done in the 80s where they actually measured the chemical makeup of tears mm. in children. And they found that tears contain stress hormone. And when that stress hormone is not released, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a buildup in the body. Absolutely. So our bodies are naturally wired mm. to cleanse themselves, Absolutely. to heal themselves. And we don't think about tears actually being healing. It's our body healing the trauma. Because what happens when we're one, two, three, four years old, when we don't have the context, everything is traumatic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just the simple act of your godson falling is trauma mm -hmm. to that boy because he doesn't have the context to understand he's learning something. And so then when he falls, his body says, I need to cry. Mm -hmm. So he's releasing hormones. He's releasing these stress hormones that build up that eventually will cause all of the various things that you talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Heart disease, cancers, you name it. It's one of the reasons why men die younger than women. So I'm just wondering from your perspective and from your research, what you make of that link between us boys not being allowed to cry all the way up to the symptoms that we have as men that lead us to, you know, why we're in so much pain, yeah. why we have all of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you made it brilliantly, like, you know, talking about that, that early socialization, like, you know, and how that continues throughout the course of our lives and how that socialization continues to impact the, neg the, ne the ways we neglect our physical and emotional selves. I think about it specifically, like I think about black men and I think about the things that black men experience in this country, whether it's police brutality or racism or transphobia and the ways in which you, you experience all this distress, yet you've internalized this message that you can't, you can't cry, you yeah. can't communicate about it. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at depressive rates for black men, for young black men, when we look at self-harm rates, we wonder like, where is that coming from? It's like the intersection of male, of male socialization and this piece is, really, is literally killing us, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's pivotal, it's a critical health intervention for us to really expand the range of what it means to be a man, mm -hmm. to have to, so, that, so that the range isn't so limited mm -hmm. and so rigid, and so, that we, so that men and masculine folks can have the full range of their humanity, which is a really yes. big part of what happens, right? You lose your humanity because you become this this kind of caricature person of a self and you can't be a full human self. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like that's a critical health intervention. One of the things that we do at um at, at Beam, we have our program Black Masculinity Reimagined, right? And it's really built out of the work that I've seen, um, I've seen most effective in really transforming men and masculine folks in, in these in these concepts. And so it does all the work of like one, beginning to just sit back and examine what did I learn about what it means to be a man, whether I'm gay, straight, whether I'm non-binary, what I learned about masculinity, whether I'm woman, a woman, there are masculine women who are in the this, in this spaces, and begin to think about what did I learned, not necessarily what was just taught to me specifically, but what did I see modeled with dad, mm. with dad or uncle or the, or the or caregivers who are masculine in my life? What did they show me through their behavior and what did I internalize? And how was that showing up in ways that are not serving me, but actually creating harm mm -hmm. and facilitating like challenges in my own life, right? Mm -hmm. So beginning that process of self-reflection and then building skills, because this is the critical piece. It takes skills to learn how to do differently. Yep. Mm -hmm. We talk all the time intellectually about like, you know, we can theorize about patriarchy, theorize about sexism, but if I don't have the skills and the mm -hmm. tools to show up differently, if I don't have the reframing, the practices, then it all just is just intellectual exercise.
right? Mm. And so you have to actually, and not only do you have to practice, and this is one thing I think is critical for black masculinity to reimagine in all programs working with black men and boys, can't, you got to get the practice, but you got to have a community to reinforce it with you. Mm-hmm. I got to have you and you and you and like as, as my friends, as my homies to be like, we're in this together. So we're teaching each other to hold each other to that. Because if you don't have a community, you, there's too many things out there that are going to tell you counter. It's going to give you a different message. But if I'm going through with a cohort of folks, which is what we generally do, like a cohort of 30 to 40 folks, build relationships. Then you have somebody who's like, yeah, I know you want to say that to your girl, but you know that's not cool. Right. So you have somebody reinforcing that with you. And that's what we need to build communities of accountability because is. is as much as I hate to admit it, the insidiousness of misogyny and sexism is that men listen to other men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when a man says that, like, hey, like, it's not cool that you show up like that. You, when a man intervenes in that, there's a, there's a response yeah. that sexism has taught many men to not listen to when it comes from a woman. Right. And so it's so, it's so important that we not only unlearn, but we unlearn in community and build more communities and mentors to help show um, men and masculine folks who are younger that this is a different way to be Mm. and and consistently. I love it. So tell me some ways that you uh, practice healthy living, ways that because we don't want to perpetuate a behavior that we oftentimes see. So you've done a lot of research and you um, care about this. So give me some ways that you are living, actively living. Big question, practicing healthy living. Um, I think one of the biggest pieces in, in the context of this conversation, um, so two different pieces. So one, I'm just talking about my physical health. Like one, I am intentional about listening to what my body is telling me. When I'm experiencing some kind of back pain, like I had actually a shoulder injury. Like it was really interesting because I had to stop myself because I was ready to ignore it for like a two days. I was like, wait, are you doing what you say you should do? Oh, and I had to go to the doctor. catches, he does right? So mm. practicing yeah. listening to my body, listening to what my body's telling me. Um, you know, I engage, I have my therapy practice that I go to. I also have a variety of other wellness practices. I also, particularly as somebody who's been socialized as a man, regardless of how I identify, I'm a non-binary person who's been socialized as a man, making sure that my relationships with women and, um, you know, feminine folks that I'm listening more mm-hmm. and like, and, and not projecting as much and being intentional with that piece. Um, those are some of the ways I practice healthy living and continue to try to practice healthy living. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You are listening to the Man Enough podcast. We will be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. All right, welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. You talk about this issue a lot, uh, body dysmorphia and body image and body, masculinity. Yeah, we're just starting, we're just throwing it out there. I know. I mean, Why might not? as well. Because typically one would think um, with your body and your physique and how you walk and your all that stuff that how could someone like you have that feeling? Um, so I think that you have some thought about that. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's a really strange place to be because I recognize the immense amount of uh, privilege I have also. Like, I also recognize how lucky I am, which means that there's a dissociation between, like, my body and my mind. And uh, and there's a really a bit of a, a like, cognitive dissonance here because I, I should recognize this and I don't, which mm. means that it's, it's an illness, if you will. As an example... Uh, if you're just listening to this and you're not watching this, I'm sitting next to Yolo, 
who uh, is extremely handsome, and I'm looking at his arms and his posture, and I'm like, damn. And I'm constantly in my head being like, why can't I sit up that straight? Damn, he's a yoga teacher. He's he's got all this, and I'm like, I'm uncomfortable. And it's just what my brain does. But I'm not allowed to say that. There's no space for me as a man to say that because of the definition of what it means to be a man. I'm not allowed to complain about my body. I'm not allowed to have thoughts about my body. I have never been allowed to, which I believe is one of the reasons why uh, we never talk about it. Mm. We police women's bodies all day long. We sexualize and objectify women's bodies. But me as a straight man, I've never been allowed to share that because it's met with, oh, bro, oh, you and your six pack, oh, good luck. And then it's further reinforced by the fact that as an actor, I play these roles where I'm objectified and sexualized, where they're literally writing my character's abs into the script with nobody thinking about the fact that I'm a, I'm a new dad, I'm a husband, I have a job outside of that, my career, I don't have time to work out how the hell am I going to get my abs to look like that because I know that's going to be a GIF and it's going to be a video and all of these things. So there's a lot of pressure um, and there's just never been space. I've never felt like there's space because whenever I do share, I am, I am shamed for it because I should be so lucky. Mm -hmm. um, but that all comes from socialization. Yeah, it does come from socialization. And one thing I want to say is that, um, one, we're going to make space, right? I appreciate it. For all of us, wherever we are in this, you know, body, ableist construct, wherever we are located, and to recognize that even when we are in positions of privilege, it does not dismiss or deny the fact that we are human and still experience pain mm. and have challenges. Um, we can understand those challenges within the context of the broader systems we're in and not minimize that your pain, your discomfort, your challenges are still legitimate and need care and attendance to. Thank I think you. that's important for all of us to understand and know and to find a way to balance in the, in the context of the broader societal systems we operate in. Mm. Can I have you on speed dial? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think it's important. I, another piece you said that I think is so important, you said like how you described it as the way your brain works, that you're constantly kind of comparing and assessing up other folks. And I want to offer that... Um, the way that your brain works in that way is also deeply informed by the ways in which we're socialized by capitalism to do yes, that. Yes, right? yes, to constantly yes, be yes. in competition, particularly as masculine folks, or not even just masculine folks, women, feminine folks experiences too. Um, we we engage difference always with the assumption it has to be a hierarchy as opposed to difference meaning that like, you know, we can exist in like a continuum. Like difference has to be, so who's better? Yeah. Who's got the better butt? Who got the better mm -hmm. ass? Who's got the better, right? Like, you know? Mm. And I think that like that's something that... um. We've all, we're all grappling with and dealing with in different degrees and mm. different parts of our lives. Mm. Thank you for making space for that. I really appreciate that. So, Jay, what do you do yeah. um, to take care of yourself? Some ways that you can um, well, have a healthy life. Well, the first thing, the first thing that I'm doing, um, once I started recognizing how unhealthy it is, and, and for me, it, it, as I write about in my book, Man Enough, for anybody who's watching this who isn't aware... Um, my entire chapter two of the book is dedicated to body image. And up until I think recently, when you think of men or the word male, you would never put that next to the word body image. It just doesn't exist. That's a female thing. Um, so already there is no space there. So one of the things I recognized um, is that so much of what I was consuming was reinforcing this idea that I was not enough as I am down to if you go to the grocery store if you're listening to this next time you go to the grocery store look at a magazine look at a look at a men's magazine 
what do you see? It's basically telling us all of the things we're not so that they can sell us all of the things that we should be. It's an industry, like any industry. It wants us to feel insecure so that it profits off us, which is what we have been doing to women forever, right? But now what's interesting is that us men are starting to be affected by it, right? I think what a recent survey said 43% of all men reported being unhappy with their physical appearance. 25 years ago, all of us were happy with our physical appearance, or at least we would not admit that we weren't. So one of the things that's been helpful for me is I talk about it. And what I found interesting is thanks to my privilege and platform, when I talk about it, I can't tell you how many messages I get from men who are like, oh my God, thank you for saying something. Mm -hmm. I thought I was alone there. Why? Because the greatest myth of masculinity is that we have to do it alone. We're alone. Real men don't ask for help. Real men don't go to the doctor. Real men don't have problems. Real men aren't insecure. Real men don't have erectile dysfunction. You name it. Real men fill in the blank. <laughs> so as I've been going to therapy and doing work on it, for me, it all comes down to trauma. It all comes down to my experiences as a boy, the way I was pleased, shamed, what I was comparing myself to what I was consuming, the action heroes that I looked up to, all of it, I've been programmed to believe that I'm not enough, even when I am. And my specific type of dysmorphia is muscle dysmorphia. It's not body dysmorphia. It's muscle dysmorphia, which is a phenomenon that I believe, and I would argue, 90% of every man in any gym you go to in America right now has, except we've normalized it. Why? Because we live in a patriarchal society, and as men, we get to choose what we normalize, and we've normalized all of us men having body image issues, eating disorders, you name it, in the sake of 7 to 8% body fat or chiseled physiques and all of that stuff. So I practice something called the why ladder, which is why. Why am I wanting to watch what I'm eating? Great. Then why again? Well, because uh, I don't feel good in this shirt. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay, why? And then when you get to that third why, whatever it is, it'll tell you the root of the problem. And we're not trained to ask why. So what I've found, why do I want to work out? Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm tired today. Okay, that's great. Why? And then you find out I'm overworked, whatever, you get to the root of the problem. There's nothing wrong with going to work out. But if your answer, if my answer is ever because I don't feel good or I don't like the way that I look, then I know that I'm not addressing the root of the problem and I'm working out for the wrong reasons. So for me, it's just about understanding and knowing. I love working out. I love being fit. But when I think about that, I know I'm coming from a place of lack and I'm never going to feel good about myself, mm. no matter how many abs I have mm. or how much I restrict my eating, mm. because I'm coming from a place of um, lack and scarcity and not from abundance and love. I'm coming from a place of not being enough. And as long as I come from that place, shit, I'll never feel enough. And YOLO, I feel like you're an extremely uh, healthy and not by healthy. I, I feel like I, it sounds like healthy in the toxic way balanced, that you're talking right? about. Maybe. But you're, you're an extremely balanced person. So how do you, for <laughs> the listeners and maybe even for, for, for Justin, for, for these issues, how do you approach your own or do you struggle with body image and, and, and how do you heal from that? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I love that you made that assumption. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's based on your um, previous response about how you, you know, have a healthy lifestyle. So I'm, I'm curious if this applies to body image, you know, because I'm sure it would help a lot of people who are listening. 
No, you know, it's interesting. I, I love everything that you shared. I have struggled with and continue to struggle with. Mm. And I and I know and I will say that um, and you really hit this, hit this on the head is that for me, my relationship with food and my relationship to the gym, I had to realize what am I using this as a coping strategy to avoid? Mm. Yeah. And for yeah. me, it showed up in um, being desirable, being wanted, mm-hmm. um, and recognizing that wound and how that was connected to not only um, intimacy, but also even my own childhood stuff, right? That I was always, and I feel like for a lot of men, a lot of women, a lot of us who are chasing this body, these body yeah. images that we've been sold by capitalism, is it's about if I don't look like that, no one will want me. Or someone might abandon me because I don't have that body type, yeah. because I don't look like that. And that is the real, for me and for many of the experiences that I've had supporting folks, the wound that we have to attend to. Mm-hmm. And as I, think, I think as we attend to that wound a little bit, then we get a little more space where I'm like, I'm going to have some potato chips. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to eat this bacon. You know, because guess what? I'm still desirable. I still have other qualities yeah. about me that are desirable besides this, this, this sold image of a physical mm-hmm. body to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, we have a collective healing that we need to do for all of us, you know, around our bodies. And it's not going to be immediate. It's not going to be overnight. We're going to struggle. We're going to backslide on it. But I think opening up about, you know, when we don't feel wanted and the fear of not being wanted. Think about a lot in queer communities, too. Like the rush to be super chiseled in queer communities is so intense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. yeah. How it's specific to that community. it, it, It makes sense, though, right? Because, I mean, when you think about it, if you're a gay boy, particularly in this country, you are at risk of abandonment at every single moment. Your family mm. might not want you. Yeah. Mom and dad didn't want me. This guy may not want me. My school didn't want me. Mm. That's who I am. So can I do everything in my power to prove myself as desirable in whatever capacity I can? And if it's physical, if it's financial, if it's labels, I'm going to do what I can. And yeah. we see that happening with all of us, mm. right? And so I think there's a core wound that we are constantly being hit with in this world, when we go to the magazine, see the magazines and television, and I think it's changing a lot, a little bit. Yeah, You're seeing more to. body diversity, and but um, I think we have to start addressing that wound of, of our fear of not being wanted and desirability. Yeah, and I think there's also I mean, we've had some conversations uh, on Man Enough um, with some friends in that community and also the trans community, and there's the, the also element of protection I think is important to look at. Absolutely. Like, Like, I mean, am I going to be big enough to protect myself? Am I going to pass? Am I going to pass to protect myself? Right. Am I going to be perceived as cisgender so I can be safe? That's also a very real thing for many trans women, for trans folks. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's so many dimensions of it. But um, I always think, I, I th- you said the Y ladder, and I love the Y ladder because I actually do that a lot too. Oh, <laughs> I was like, yeah. I do that too. And I think the, the Y ladder, and in addition to that, I always ask, how is this something I'm using to cope? And if I am using it to cope, what am I running or avoiding from? Exactly. And that's what I start asking myself. Mm. And it's really interesting the places that I get to that I think that I'm so evolved Mm. from. I'm like, oh, I couldn't be. Yep, you're there. Mm. Okay. You know what's interesting (laughs) is if you're listening to this or you're watching this, this idea of the Y ladder is not, you don't have to sit down for five minutes. This this could be a 10 second, 30 second thing. Um, And what it's really doing is teaching you and yourself how to just check in which is not something that we have men has ever been allowed to do. We've never been taught mm. to check in with ourselves or our bodies or our feelings and ask ourselves why. Yeah. You know, and it's so important to uh, say that the why ladder or the why question is so important. And I always tell people that everything has a root, but every root isn't rotten, right? That's really important. Mm-hmm. People like scared, like, oh, it's bad. It's like, well, every root isn't rotten of something, but it's everything is rooted and connected to something. 
Because um, our coping strategies are really just ways in which our central nervous system, our brain, our bodies are just trying to heal survive. from something. Survive. survive. Thank yep. you for saying. And yeah. so sometimes we have to be like, we recognize that certain coping strategies are what we needed at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But maybe we've outgrown them. Maybe they we don't, don't need them. They yeah. don't serve us anymore. And so yeah. now we need to be like, well, I need to, this isn't helping me get my needs met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've been doing recently, um, and we'll wrap this up, is through my own therapy, I learned that over the course of my life, I've hated my body because I felt like my body has disappointed me. It's failed me. My, when I pull a muscle, I lost scholarships because I tore my hamstring. It's just, it's, it's failed me because I wanted it to be a machine, a robot, and bodies aren't meant for that. And this idea, this culture we're living in, the socialization that we have to grind ourselves, what are we, you know, what are we doing? We're actually wearing ourselves out so that we die younger. Um, so I have been practicing compassion which is a radical thought. If, I, if the first place my eyes go to are my abs, which I don't have my six pack right now, I'm gonna hate myself. But I need to find something about myself I like. So reminding myself I'm enough in the mirror privately when no one around is something that I'm practicing right now as an actual step to heal a lot of this. And then the guilt or the shame, if I don't go to the gym, if I decide to eat a pizza, and I'm like, you know what? I just ate a whole pizza. Oh shit, I must be eating my emotions. But you know what? I could, it doesn't have to become a shame spiral. I don't have to make myself feel terrible afterwards and then not eat for 24 hours and disguise it as like, you know, f- fasting for the sake of, you know, whatever. I can just be a human being and give myself some grace and compassion. So if you're listening to this and you identify with any of it, um, practice asking why and then give yourself some compassion because you're not a robot, you're a damn human. We're not human doings. We are human beings. You are listening to the Man Enough podcast. We will be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough podcast. Something I think we got to get into, as uncomfortable as it is, is what happens when we age. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know where this is going to go. And, I'm going to wrap up right now. I know, I know you're going to come to come. Luckily, me. we have... A resident expert in aging. Wow. <laughs> you see this? <laughs> and I accept it. Mr. Jay Mahee. Thank you very much. My best friends in the world. Yes, indeed. Could be my father. <laughs> but you look amazing. You, you look so this? good. I, I know. I this is you look so good in that tight black t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, you, what's your question? Man? <laughs> We're talking about health, right? You want to talk about like age... How I'm feeling as I'm getting older? I'm just curious because we know that as men get older, yes, the statistics show that even though we have physical ailments, we don't go to the doctor as mm-hmm. much as women. Do you go to the doctor when you have physical stuff going on? So this you- is interesting. So um, I'm raised in a world where I could never show weakness. Yeah, All of us are. We are never barely and rarely seen. So if you finally see me, I can't show you any weakness. Right. And health is oftentimes seen as a weakness. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, mental stuff. So my, I got a mother who's bipolar. Um, I've seen her. She does this amazing thing, by the way, that I learned earlier that I think is worth sharing now for anyone who's listening. You know, when you see someone with a broken ankle, we always like say, oh, my God, let's slow down for them. We go get them water. Yeah. We come and bring them things. We recognize that something's wrong. But mental health is something else. She would say, you can't see my broken brain. You don't see that I have crutches on in here. 
So it just frustrates you. And when I think about that, wow, like mental health, how many people are dealing with some sort of uh, issue in that regard and are dismissed. So I have that stigma myself as well because I saw my mom and I didn't see the crutches. So when I started going through my own life and messing up and needing help, I was never going to admit to anybody. Number one, I'm a man. I can't admit I'm weak. Um, I was doing some destruction in my life. Couldn't admit it. Needed help. I was sexually abused growing up many times. Could not admit that to anybody, barely myself. Yeah. Um, so where do you find a safe space? How do I deal with that? Where does a man go? Who do I tell that when I was a kid, I was dealing with stuff that I was humiliated about, had shame about? Who do I tell that to? There was no one to talk to. Um, even if you think you're put together, it could be a 12-step program of learning how to like uh, sew some clothes together. I don't care. The process of 12-step, the process of the accountability, looking at yourself, admitting to another person that I have some broken parts mm. without anybody judging me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, is really healing. But you can't really have healing if you don't have a space where you don't have to apologize for where you're at. I'm, I'm feeling this. And someone says, I feel you. I hear you. So, Yolo, I got a question for you. Um, you've been fairly public about being an abuse survivor. Um, how have you been able to create spaces for your healing? Yeah. Well, I, I want to lift up and bring in, and, and very honestly, in the similar way they talked about 12-step programs, 12-step as, as a form of peer support, right? Which is really something that like in mental health and healing spaces we talk about, and it's the center of our work. Creating the space, like I think about Me Too as a peer support space as well, yeah. and other kind mm -hmm. of like spaces where for you to be seen, validated, not always about working towards solutions, but sometimes just being, being, being witnessed, mm -hmm. right? Being witnessed. And right. the powerful process of that. And I think for me, um, similar to like, do you share this piece? It's been being a part of those groups that have really been helpful for me to be able to come to a place of taking um, ownership and responsibility for the parts of me that were broken, the parts of the strategies that I learned that were no longer serving me, that I learned to survive, mm -hmm. um, absolving myself, particularly when it came to the times in which I've, I've suffered abuse um, of what I was not responsible for. Because I think a big part of what happens for people who are survivors of abuse is you start thinking that you made it happen, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's a big part of um, my unlearning journey has been like, you know, I did not, I am not responsible for this man's behavior, right? I did not like, he, like I, no matter what I was wearing, what I was doing, when I, when he made a choice and his choice was about him and not about me. Mm. And really holding that line has been because of peer support programs, because of 12-step programs for me, because it's being able to be witnessed. And I think that like there's a piece that this one left up too, Jamie, that you shared about, you know, I think about black folks, why I think that peer support and 12-step is so powerful is that sometimes traditional models of clinical health when with mental health for some, particularly for, I would say, black men of a certain age, right? Like, you know, I definitely have experiences in our community. Where's the idea, like, you know, the idea of sitting across from a clinician who may not be look like you, right? In this chair, who's like kind of quote unquote judging you as a thought perspective is a lot more intimidating for a lot of folks than it has the idea of sitting in a circle with yeah. a group of people who are peers, yeah. who are going to meet you here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Who aren't right. Like, you know, and so there's something of even about there's something that Western mental health needs to interrogate about, like how that construction in itself is a barrier for some of our folks. Because mm. that's why peer support and 12 step, 12 step is so powerful. It's like we get to just be like me, too. I'm here with you. I see you. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. healing in of itself. You that's know what right. I mean? So I just yeah, just so to, like this naming those pieces. That's been a big part of my healing journey consistently, you know, learning. And, and it's really been 
you know, be quite being quite honest, like I've really learned so much from it. Like, you know, Tarana Burke, who's a friend and like the Me Too movement of learning um, really to embrace like, you know, that part of my journey. Because unfortunately, despite the prevalence we know of, of child sexual assault in men's communities and in non-binary and trans communities, not necessarily like it's public in terms of discussions, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of room to to kind of move through that shame and guilt around that and that and that, you said that embarrassment, all those different dimensions. Mm-hmm. I love that. As confusing and painful as it is, but look how we're, we're able to do right now. I mean, just having this conversation is, can you imagine our fathers? They've never had a conversation like this. Yeah. If we had fathers, my dad never had a conversation like this. But you know, one thing I will say is this, when we, when we show up in our work, we, uh, we often inspire our move other folks to kind of show up in theirs. And I say this like jokingly, like I remember one day I'm on the phone and my family are country folks, country black people, right? So one day I'm on the phone <laughs> my dad, um, deep Georgia and Florida, but mostly Fort Lauderdale, Sylvania, Georgia. So like right. we're talking about deep Georgia, right? So I'm on the phone with my dad and like, you know, he's seen the work that I've done with Beam. And in one moment he's like, you know what? I was listening to you the other day and I was like, maybe I need to go to therapy. And then my mother's like in the background, you can hear up like, Lord, it's the end times. You heard your dad just say it. Like, you know, laughing. Like, you know, that joke. But, but like, all I had to say that, like, uh, I haven't spent my time, like, you know, sitting, telling my dad he need to go do this. And that's not, that's not, because I often felt like that's a judgmental approach. I was like, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Hey, check this out. Yeah. And what you a beautiful I mean? and, thing. And then, then he's like, okay, I don't, right. I don't mess with that. Or maybe that's interesting. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like moving from that place, I think is important. But how beautiful is that, that our fathers, those of us that have them can learn from us. And that's what I've been witnessing happening with my dad. Mm. I, just as an example, my dad won't go to the doctor. I try, I'm like, dad, go to the doctor. This is hurting, go to the doctor. So what that created in me was I'm now going when I might not even need to go. Mm. Not in that I'm a hypochondriac or that I'm like Googling my symptoms and things like that, but I, but as an example, I know about colorectal cancer and I'm watching it take a lot of young men. And I'm like, you know what? I should go get screened. So I call my doctor, I find a specialist and I'm like, hey, can I get a colorectal exam? He's like, how old are you? I said, 36. It's like, no. <laughs> I'm like, why? He's like, well, you don't really, we, we say you don't really need to until this age. I'm like, okay, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Send me the damn thing. So I paid whatever it was. I got my colorectal cancer early screening test and boom, great. Now I'm good for five years. I'll go get in five years. I want to go get my prostate checked. Why are we waiting until we're broken to get fixed? What about preventative medicine as well? I think that there's something good about getting physicals and getting checkups yeah. and blood work done. And, and the there's access. nothing unmasculine about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there's not enough access to that in this country, particularly, you know, compared to other industrialized countries. Um, it's actually very difficult, oh, right? so like, hard. And this access also comes with a lot of consequences because a lot of the diseases, um, you know, if you don't catch them early, they can mm-hmm. be uh, more lethal. So there's this pretty atrocious data that shows that men are more likely to die from melanoma, 50% more likely to die from melanoma. And that mm. all comes back to access. Oh, wow. wow. And we know that when we make healthcare more um, accessible, yep. men and particularly marginalized men go to the doctor more. Mm. And right? they live they, longer yes. when they do. And I, I really want to like two pieces. So one, talking about as black men in this country, like why we wouldn't go out, why black men wouldn't go to the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Because... Um, every time so many black men have engaged the medical industrial complex, it's been disrespectful, it's been denied, it's been ignored, it's been ignored, it's been exploited. But I think there's this real big fear because we, because so many black men, so many masculines know that there's so much holding back, right? 
And I, so I think that like when we talk about like why, why is racism sometimes? Why is transphobia for black trans men? Like, oh my God, no! Why would mm-hmm. I want to go to a doctor? Um, why is homophobia? Mm-hmm. Am I go to my if I go to the doctor, the doctor's going to ask me certain mm-hmm. questions and look at me a certain kind of way when I say about the kind of sex I have or whatever I'm doing. And the, and the fault is not on. Uh, our communities, the fault is on the systems that say they're supposed to be serving us and are not. Mm-hmm. And so we need to hold accountable as opposed to saying, oh, why aren't black men or men or Latino men mm-hmm. saying, well, why aren't doctors better trained with bedside manner? Mm-hmm. Why aren't you more educated about these issues? How many times have I gone to the doctor and had to tell them something? They look it up and be like, oh, you was right about that thing about vitamin D and black people. I didn't know I got ordered a different test. I'm like, I should not. I pay you. <laughs> you know? And that's the, and, and yeah. that's and that's a reality. We need to hold the systems accountable. Say so you need to step up your game. You need to step up and be on par with the conversations you know the culture is having, so that people can feel safe coming to you yes. and getting care with you. And you need to be examining your privilege in all these different dimensions. So whether you're a white doctor, a woman doctor, wherever you are, you know, hey, I need to, I need to own this when this person is mm. coming in. You know, and that's where the that's where unfortunately the system is not at mm. in many ways. That's right. You are listening to the Man Enough Podcast. We will be right back. All right. Welcome back to the Man Enough Podcast. Liz, mm-hmm. can I bring this over to you? Yes. Um, look, I know we've talked about how gendered the system is, the healthcare system. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I know you were semi-recently diagnosed with ADHD and you've yes. been a fierce advocate on social media about, you know, talking, like talking about it, demystifying it. Um, and it, I, I have to be honest, I don't know if I've ever heard a woman say she had ADHD. I've always, men have been diagnosed. I know um, many people thought that I had it at a young age, but I've never heard a woman talk about it, especially as much as you are. Yeah, I, I realized that I needed to talk about it when I would have conversations with with women who were like, oh my God, me, 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 you know, I, I was diagnosed too, and and no one knew, right? And it was a oh, wow. a, a phenomenon uh, of of women in their thirties, which is was my situation of being diagnosed with ADHD, um, based on not just current behaviors, adult behaviors, but but of behaviors that I clearly was uh, showing as a child, um, that obviously my psychiatrist was not there to see, but that I would tell him about. It. He was like, oh yeah, that was definitely ADHD, and I had no idea. So girls uh, present ADHD. Not all the time, but can present ADHD very differently from boys. But the sort of overall mainstream narrative about ADHD is is a very male one, right? Of mm. hyperactivity, of mm. physical aggression or physical, yeah. right? And uh, sort of being like a bad student and being disruptive. But with girls, uh, very some girls obviously that's how they present. But in my case, I wasn't disruptive. I was just like a space cadet, and so I was very distracted. I lost every lunchbox I ever owned. Mm. I lost every <laughs> bus pass I ever owned. Like the amount of things that I lost or 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 misplaced was um it was so it was such a big source of shame because I literally thought that there was something wrong with me. And then you get humiliated oh. uh additionally because of that behavior. So it's it's it, if I'd just kind of known um or if the adults around me had known, I think it would have just been a very different experience. Um so I try and talk about it a lot so that it just helps other adult women feel seen, but also if we can help more more girls get diagnosed earlier. Um so yeah, that's why I talk about it and it really 
it relates, I think, to this conversation that we're having um, around around men and so many other things that that maybe we represent more, you know, in, in a more quote unquote female way, mm. domestic violence being one of them, right? There are so many oh, men wow. yeah. who um, obviously uh, deal with, with, with domestic violence. It's a very big issue for, for gay men particularly. And very often what we find is that uh, men don't know that they are mm. in a domestic violence situation because that's not necessarily what's represented on television or even talked about in a mainstream way. Mm. Or, and there's shame and stigma if you are. And so, Yolo, I'd love for you to, if you want to, share um, your your, your thoughts about that in your own personal experience uh, i want to say this again the, the the realities of why young girls are not monitored and diagnosed with adhd is because of the bias that has been so inherent in the western industrial mental health social complex in terms of how they even think about yeah. like you know diagnoses and, and how the who the evidence is gathered upon which mm -hmm. is often male and white folks mm -hmm. right and so when you see those disparities in gender or, or race etc or how these diagnoses show up mm -hmm. that's because of all that bias that we yeah. that we still are unraveling Unraveling. Yeah. And so I just want to lift up that's so important. And I'm just grateful that you are advocating and, and, and bringing more attention to that because it's not just ADHD. It's a variety of oh. different conditions yes. that um, have that lens, yes. you know, that have that same phenomena happening. Um, yeah. And I'm glad you bring up this piece about, you know, intimate partner violence. Like, um, you know, one piece I always say, too, is that most of the time we talk about violence in this country, we, we talk about violence against women which is one of the most bizarre terms I've yes. ever heard before in my mm -hmm. life. It's like, who's doing the violence? Yes. When what we're really talking about is the issue is male violence towards women in this yes. country, right? That um, that men have a problem and, and perpetuate violence mm -hmm. and harm towards women. But it's presented as if women are doing something wrong yeah. as opposed to men have an issue mm -hmm. and a problem and are doing this harm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The words that we use, they have so much, so much power. power. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think there, there's additional piece of... Because of the narrative that we've kind of seen in the mainstream around this is the way intimate partner violence looks like, which mm -hmm. has often been heterosexual, which has often been very mm -hmm. white. It's always kind of like you get this image of this very, uh, you know, meek person who's like, you know, overpowered by this big, like, you know, big mm -hmm. person, which overshadows the complexities of how domestic violence shows yes. up and what it looks like in, in the world. All the different nuances. Yes. Right. And particularly with gay men. Um, you know, most gay men, like there was um, a, a research study that I cited in the article that I did for Shauna Land a few years back that talked about that, you know, 40% of gay men were just like, we don't even believe that gay men can have intimate partner violence. Like, wow. you know, we're just men being men. So he hit wow. me, but I didn't see that as domestic violence. I saw that as just two dudes fighting it out, right? Mm -hmm. So here you see this really kind of unique intersection where socialized as a man, even though I'm queer, I still believe that like I'm a man, right? So like me and him hitting it, it's, mm -hmm. it's not like violence because there's no women present right mm. and so the ways wow. in which that just erases the reality of how violence and harm shows up mm. um, another important piece I will say like in, even in my experience or one piece I want to mm. say before that actually is um, people often make the mistake of saying you know emotional violence is worse than physical violence or physical violence and I just want to and I always say this this is important to know that is a false dichotomy yeah yep. when emotional violence impacts the somatic in your physical self mm-hmm Physical violence impacts your emotional self. Once again, these are not like we are not halved human beings. We are whole people. So people like emotional is bad. As it, no, they're both terrible. Mm. And they both have a variety of different psychosomatic spiritual <laughs> impact yeah. on our beings. Right. Yeah. Um, but for me, speaking as a survivor, you know, I recognize that for me, I grew up in an environment. And I think many of us grow up in environments where... 
there were always women and people making excuses for men's violent and aggressive behavior. And I grew up doing that too, excusing aggressive and violent behavior. And so I ended up in relationships where I was once again excusing mm -hmm. the violent aggressive behavior that I watched women in my life do for men. Right. And so, and it shows up in the ways in which we think about it now. Like, you know, he's, well, he just got a temper. It's like, no, but he just punched the wall and he yeah. just hit her. Yeah. And it's like, we're excused, like, oh, it's just yeah. da, da, da. like, you know, and so I grew up seeing that yeah. mm -hmm. and thinking that in order to get love and intimacy, I had to do that too. Yeah. And so I, and so I recognize where that was my survival strategy. Mm. But a part of my healing was understanding that um, I am not responsible for a man's anger. Mm hmm. And that was huge for me. Like, I am not responsible for your anger. Yeah. yeah. And can we even talk about that? Because that was a big point. So I was in a physically abusive relationship and then I was in an emotionally one. And first of all, it was almost easier to see the physical because it was like, in both cases, they blame you. Always. That's part of it. Always. And with the physical, it was so clear to me. It's like, this can't possibly be my fault. Like mm -hmm. you are literally like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. this I've seen, again, I've mm -hmm. seen this mm -hmm. on TV, like there's no way. Mm -hmm. But with emotional abuse, it can be Oof. not worse. Or I think I so love what you just said. That, that's gonna stick with me forever. Uh, Cause it's so true. There, there's no like hierarchy, but it's harder to, 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 to see that it's not your fault. Yeah. Because you're like, is it? I guess I am crazy. I, mm. I guess, and if it's covert and done in again more pernicious ways, it's even worse. Um, and the other thing that I, I'm thinking about as as you're speaking is also this idea that it only happens to weak people. Mm -hmm. And again, this idea that you know, why did you stay? Right? Why mm -hmm. would you put up with that? There must be something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, why was it so bad that you stayed? I love that 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 reframing. And so I'm wondering if you can speak to that, right? The way that we talk about again, it relates to gender and masculinity yep. so much, right? That it can't possibly happen to a man because you're the strong one. Yeah. That that then it 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 adds a layer to the abuse Absolutely. and makes it even harder to get out. Absolutely. I love that reframing. Another, another question I think we need to ask is why does he do that? Mm -hmm. Why do so many men do that? To the person that they say that they love say the that. most. Say that. What is that about? Like yeah. putting it on the onus of the person who's committing the behavior as opposed to asking why she say, well, you know why women stay? Well, one, one my chance of getting killed... <laughs> When I, if I choose to leave, increases yeah. by 70% because I know this is such a violent encounter and, and That's dynamic. That's when it gets the worst. That's when it yeah. gets the worst. Mm. So, but why are we putting the onus on women, our survivors, to do that? Mm -hmm. As opposed to like the, the responsibility of the community to say his behavior, their behavior, this mm -hmm. person's behavior mm -hmm. needs to be stopped. Mm -hmm. And that's not what that's not where the conversation goes. Mm -hmm. Like I think about particularly in gay men's communities, you know, I've encountered the ridicule and joking about like you can't believe you let him put his hands mm -hmm. on you. It's like what does that even mean? Yeah. Like how could you even say something yeah. like that? Like once again, I'm responsible for his behavior, mm -hmm. right? Like I magically puppet stringed him mm -hmm. to hit me, mm -hmm. right? And so and so I think that like moving the onus um, of the behavior onto the person who's committed and asking the question, why are they doing that? Yeah. We teach so much codependency and violence, which deeply connects with the with intimate partner violence in yeah, our country. Exactly. Mm. And so, so much of the unlearning, even about our ideas about relationships, has to happen. Yes. Wow. Yes. Oh, damn. Sorry, I feel like I just. I mean, no, no, we yeah. went somewhere. No, no, <laughs> you so took good. us. Thank you. You do. You do. Um, I'm so I'm so happy we went there. Mm -hmm. Um. And I do also want to say that there are a lot of 
straight men who have experienced emotional and physical abuse yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I was in an emotionally abusive relationship, one of my first relationships, and there's nowhere to go because that's the other power system is who the hell is this six foot one yeah. big dude going to talk to about his five foot nothing girlfriend and the codependency and emotional abuse that happens there. So I think that, um, yes, and we just got to find a way to create some safe spaces so that we can just get real with each other and not have shame Absolutely. when we, um, when we're experiencing these things. Absolutely. And another piece I would say too, is we have to get to a space where we also recognize, um, as I recognize when I worked in men stopping violence and was working with men who had committed physical assault or been abusive, everyone in that room was a survivor. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we talk about survivors as binaries. The survivors yeah. and abusers, and like, and I have a problem with sometimes uh, that the, those those terms being given to people who have not chosen those terms, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but like, um, not recognizing that many people who commit violence or show up in violence and intimate part of relationships often experience violence, witness violence happening towards their family members, and so for us to heal, we can't create this binary where we evil and make people. We have to begin to like think about holistic healing. Yeah. yeah that community needs to take this person who committed mm-hmm. this harm and help them unlearn that harm mm-hmm. and heal. Mm-hmm. And they also need to support the survivor yeah. and yeah. make sure that survivor gets the needs that they need to get survived. Yeah. And we can do both. Yes. And <laughs> it is not the victim's job to heal oh, their harm. And that's not. what you learn in a 12-step program absolutely right away. Not. That's the number one thing. And that's a critical piece. Yeah. I always say like those separated away, yes. right? Like exactly. it is not responsibility of the, mm-hmm. the person who is a survivor to say, oh, I'm going to help you heal or yes. forgive you. No, no. Mm. Respond, it won't work. It, it won't even work. It's, and it's, and yeah. it's not It's not your role. Exactly. It is the role of the community to hold exactly. that person yeah. responsible for the behavior, to help them cultivate accountability and help them change their behavior, mm-hmm. not the role of the survivor. And that's and that's what we often see put on women, even the yeah. violence against women. It's like violence against yes. women. But yeah, women got to fix it. Yes. Wait, hold yes. on now. Mm-hmm. What? No. Like, why that's is the this? logic. Yeah. You know? no, yeah. That's why it's a man's issue. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> it just made me think, you know, we rarely also look at the look at the data in terms of Look at, look at our boys. One in five boys are molested before the age of 10. And of course, they're not telling anybody about it. How many of them grow up to hurt? You know, and look at the similar, look at the, you know, one in four women, one in five men. I mean, it's right in front of us. We got to find a way to protect our boys and also to heal. Can you say one more time the line about you're not broken just for any men who are yeah. watching this who feel like people, yeah. people but <laughs> yeah. anyone who feels like they can't go to the doctor because it would mean they're broken. Yeah, I just it's important to know that trauma creates the illusion that we are broken. You know, and as we heal, we come to the reality that we've always been whole. Mm -hmm. We may have had to learn some new behaviors, some new strategies. We may have made some mistakes, but we are still whole. We are still worthy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that trauma creates that illusion and that distortion Mm -hmm. of our worthiness. We are enough. Mm -hmm. I say, we are enough. (laughs) We are enough. Thank you so much. Uh, What a what a conversation. So many layers. So much complexity. You're an angel. (laughs) (laughs) For more men's health information and resources, you can find us. Where can they find us, Liz? At We Are Men Enough on Instagram or Healthline on Instagram. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to this special series. Thanks to our partners at Healthline. This is Man Enough. I'm Justin Baldoni. I'm Liz Plank. Jamie Heath. Yolo Akili. And we'll see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Man Enough podcast, produced by Wayfair Studios and presented by Procter & Gamble in partnership with Cadence 13 and Odyssey Company. Hosted by Justin Baldoni, Liz Plank, and me, Jamie Heath. If you like what you heard, please follow us and tune in weekly as we undefine masculinity and learn in real time. Justin Baldoni, Jamie Heath, and Tara Mahotra Feinberg from Wayfair Studios, Mark Pritchard and Kerry Rathode from Procter & Gamble, and Chris Corcoran from Cadence 13 are our executive producers. Kahea Kiwaha is our producer. Brandy Cole is head of marketing. Susie Landers O'Connell is our assistant editor. And Josh Schneider is our lead editor. Thanks for listening.